Hey friends, welcome to Bad Ideas About Writing. It's the podcast that counters major myths about writing instruction. It's the audio version of an open access book that if you haven't read it yet, it's called Bad Ideas About Writing, What a Coincidence, which is edited by Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy. It's a book that's full of all kinds of ideas that you can use in the classroom, you can listen to on your own, and you can use to kind of point towards that person who seems to still hold on to a writing instruction myth. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm from Rockford University where I teach writing, and I'm just here to read those chapters that other people have written out loud for you, giving you another way to access those ideas. So here today, we're at episode 46 of the podcast, which is, of course, chapter 46 of the book. And here's today's bad idea about writing. Rubrics save time and make grading criteria visible. It's by Anna Leahy. In K-12 and in higher education, rubrics have become popular for evaluating students' writing. The straightforwardness of a rubric, a list of criteria of what counts often in a checklist form, appeals to the instructor or evaluator and to administrators collecting data about students because it is a time-saving tool for measuring skills demonstrated in complex tasks, such as writing assignments. Rubrics, however, are a bad idea for writers and for those who teach writing. A Rube Goldberg machine is an overly engineered mechanism for a simple task. A rubric, by comparison, looks fancy and is often quantitative. It looks incredibly well-engineered with its seemingly airtight checklist. In fact, It's overly engineered to organize feedback into criteria and levels, rows and columns. Instead of responding to writing in language with oral or written feedback, many rubrics mechanize response. At the same time, a rubric is an overly simple way to ignore that an essay is a complicated whole. It is impossible to tease its characteristics completely apart because they are interdependent. A rubric, then, is an odd way to simultaneously overcomplicate and oversimplify the way one looks at and judges a written text. Let's begin with a look at the words origins and uses to understand where the problem with rubrics begins. The word rubric comes from the Latin word for red. The red to which the word originally referred was the color of earth that contained the impure iron, that is, ochre, and that was used to make ink. A rubric is, unfortunately and perhaps inadvertently, a way to focus on the impurity. It's a red pen with all its power to correct and to write over what has been created. If one evaluates writing by looking for what's wrong or what needs to be corrected or fixed, one misses potential and fails to point toward improvement in the future. Moreover, the rubric's simplicity implies that all writing can be fixed or corrected and that this correction can be done in the same way across pieces of written work and across students. Instead of suggesting that revision, sometimes re-envisioning, is a more rewarding and fruitful step in becoming a better writer. Contemporary definitions for rubric suggest that it's a term equivalent to a rule, especially for how to conduct a liturgical service, like stage directions printed in red, or an established tradition. 
In other words, rubrics work to maintain the status quo and prevent experimentation, deviation from the norm, and innovation. If you do X and Y and Z, the rubric says, your writing is good. But what if you do X and Y and B and discover something you'd not known before and isn't on the rubric? The rubric does not accommodate the unexpected. Following the rules, the rubric to the letter is the opposite of what good writing does. Even writers as different as Flannery O'Connor and Joan Didion have said that they don't know what they think until they write it. So writing is a way of thinking, of inventing one's thoughts through language and inventing sentences that represent thoughts. But a rubric is a set of preconceived parameters designed before seeing the products of the task at hand that applies across the board. While a set of assignment guidelines can allow a writing task to be carried out in various ways, a rubric becomes an evaluative tool that doesn't make sense if writing is the individual exploration that many writers experience. A rubric suggests that the task and its goals are understood before the writing itself occurs, and that writing works the same way for everyone, every time. Even when a rubric works adequately to evaluate or provide feedback, or even when teachers ask students to practice particular techniques or know what they're looking for, using such a tool sends the message to students that writing fits preconceived notions. Students know that on some level, they are writing to the rubric instead of writing to think. Another contemporary definition of the word is as a heading or category. That definition suggests that using a rubric to evaluate writing is a way to label a piece of writing and perhaps unintentionally label the writer as well. The more comprehensive and detailed a rubric is, the less it is able to label efficiently. Rubrics, then, cannot be all-inclusive or wide-ranging, and also good at specifying and categorizing. These labeling tools do not often include the possibility of either-or that recognizes multiple ways to achieve a given goal. Rubrics, learning outcomes, assessment practices, and the quantitative or numerical scoring of performance emerge out of the social sciences. That's the underlying problem for using these methods to evaluate writing and to encourage improvement. Why must social science approaches, techniques adapted from science to study human behavior, be used to evaluate work in the arts and humanities? Tools like rubrics ask those of us trained in the arts and humanities to understand the difference between direct, product-based, such as exams or papers, and indirect, perception-based, such as surveys, outcomes. Social science methodology asks teachers to see a text as data, not as language or creative production. These terms, such as data, are not ones that writers use to describe or understand their own writing and learning. Writing instructors and administrators like me, especially those who use rubrics not only for grading but for assessing entire programs, are using tools with which we are not properly trained and that were designed for other academic disciplines and data-driven research. While rubrics may be moderately helpful in assessing a program on the whole or providing program-level benchmarks, they are generally 
unhelpful as currently used in helping individual students improve their writing. According to Classroom Assessment Techniques, a book by Thomas A. Angelo and K. Patricia Cross, the top teaching goals for English are writing skills, thinking for oneself, and analytic skills. The arts, humanities, and English share think for oneself as a high-priority goal. In addition, the arts, of which writing, especially creative writing, might be considered a part, lists creativity as a top goal, and the humanities considers openness to ideas as an extension of thinking for oneself as a priority in teaching. These skills are all very difficult to measure, especially via a preconceived rubric, and much more difficult than goals like apply principles or terms and facts, which are among the top teaching goals for business and the sciences. In other words, the most important goals for writing teachers are among the most difficult to evaluate. The standard rubric is better suited for measuring the most important aspects of learning in other fields than in writing. Some rubrics attempt to be holistic, but when they begin to succeed, they are already moving away from being good rubrics for labeling or scoring. The more holistic the rubric is, the less effective it is at saving time, a feature that makes rubrics attractive in the first place. While rubrics can be used for narrative or qualitative feedback, they are unnecessary scaffolding in such cases, and worse, invite prescriptive responses. That's what's needed in the evaluation of writing, a move away from the prescriptive and toward the descriptive, a move away from monitoring toward formative and narrative feedback. Novelist John Irving has said that his work as an MFA student in fiction writing saved him time because his mentors told him what he was good at and to do more of that, and what he was not as good at and to do less of that. What Irving points to is formative and narrative response from expert mentors and engaged peers who revise their work and explore their options as writers. Formative and narrative feedback, as Mitch James writes about in a previous chapter, involves the student in analyzing and thinking about his or her own writing. Self-reflection and awareness, which are key in learning over the long haul, become part of these types of evaluation. The simple technique of posing the question, what if, can compel a writer to try out options for writing, even when the writing task is specific in topic, audience, or length. Importantly, these types of feedback are individualized, not a one-size-fits-all response to a writing task. Feedback can be given at any time, not only when the task is complete and there's no going back, not only at a time designated to give all students feedback. While rubrics can be employed in process, the form encourages end use in practice and discourages real-time or back-and-forth exchange of information. Nearly real-time response can have an immediate effect, and you don't need a rubric to do that. The summative response that is based on rubrics takes time, becomes linked with grading, and becomes removed from the ongoing practice of writing itself, all of which make rubrics a bad idea. Instead, using formative types of feedback that are separated from grading often propels a writer into revision as he or she attempts to strengthen the written piece and his or her own writing skills. Further reading. 
For more of Anna Leahy's thoughts about assessment, see Cookie Cutter Monsters, One Size Methodologies, and the Humanities. For advice on using rubrics, see Designing and Using Rubrics from the Gail Morris Sweetland Center for Writing at the University of Michigan. In addition, W. James Popham provides a different take on rubrics in the journal Educational Leadership. To learn more tips on providing formative feedback, see 10 Tips for Providing Formative Feedback. Keywords. Assessment. Formative Feedback. Revision. Rubric. Summative Feedback. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You just heard the bad idea about writing. Rubrics save time and make grading criteria visible. And it's by Anna Leahy, who in 2020 sent me this updated bio. Anna Leahy is the author of the nonfiction book Tumor and the poetry collections Aperture and Constituents of Matter. Her essays and poetry have appeared at The Atlantic, Crab Orchard Review, Fifth Wednesday Journal, The Southern Review, The Pinch, and elsewhere. And her essays have won top awards from the Los Angeles Review, Ninth Letter, and Dogwood. She is the editor of Power and Identity in the Creative Writing Classroom and What We Talk About When We Talk About Creative Writing, and has contributed to a variety of other books and journals about teaching. She directs the MFA in Creative Writing program at Chapman University, where she edits the International Tab Journal and curates the Tabula Poetica reading series. See more at www. .amlahey.com. The podcast version of Bad Ideas About Writing is produced and narrated by me, and it's hosted at Anchor.fm. The theme music is Parade by Nocturnum, and the open access book Bad Ideas About Writing was first published way back in 2017 by the West Virginia University Libraries and Digital Publishing Institute. Hey, how cool that they did that. That's where you should go if you'd like to read a print version of this chapter. Just Google Bad Ideas About Writing. I promise you, you'll find it. Both the podcast and the book are published under really open Creative Commons licenses that allow you to download them, remix them, write a song based on them, and distribute them for free. And hey, even like sell them if you want, as long as you attribute the authors. Thanks as always to the awesome editors, Cheryl Ball and Drew Lowy, and all of the authors in this awesome collection. I'm Kyle Stedman. I'm on Twitter at KStedman, and I live in Rockford, Illinois, where it's so hot that I decided to leave the AC on instead of turning it off to make it a little bit quieter in here. Who knows if you'll hear that little buzz in the background or not, but you know what? It was worth it. Thanks for listening.